You're about to meet some of the most exciting and creative minds in Irish tech, and they all have one thing in common. They're all still in school. Tech Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. This week for episode 952, our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson, is on the floor at one of our favourite events of the entire year. Let's go there right now. This week, I'm at the RDS in Dublin for the 58th BT Young Scientist and Technology Exhibition. I've got a voice recorder, a notebook, and a whole load of tech projects to see. So let's get moving. When I think about the link between music and the cosmos, I'm always drawn to think about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, and I'm brought here by Matthew O'Regan from St. Andrew College in Dublin. And he's got a problem that kind of brings the two together uh, in certainly a more uh, scientific fashion than we would expect. So tell us a little bit about your project. So it started off, I had a, a galaxy catalogue of 14,000 galaxies. And I didn't want to do sums, I didn't want to do the work, so I I got a machine learning algorithm and I fired it at this data set and I asked it to find its own patterns. Now this is, um, in machine learning, there's a big problem that it's a lot of the time it's like a black box. We don't really understand until we set with labels what we want to know, what the algorithm is quote unquote thinking. So I created this algorithm which outputted a quite an ugly uh, graph finding all of the uh, patterns within this catalog and then it became a piece of music which I'm able to play uh, at this exhibition. And then uh, I took the Holtz Planet Suite and I took the Mer- Mercury and Uranus suites and I used an algorithm to com- compare them and in- interpolate them so that I could have, which means that I found the associations between the two pieces of music and I was able to play that as another uh, piece of music. And uh, a lot of people say it sounds like rave music or the beat to a rap song, so I'm, I'm happy that has an appeal at least to some people. I'm joined now by Ella Brennan and Aoife Foley from the Rattler Secondary School in Kilkenny. And their project was looking at something that I guess parents all over the country are quite interested in, which is uh, the issue of technology overload and how technology is affecting young people today. So, Ella, I guess I'll ask you the first question. Where did the idea for the project come from? Um, We noticed ourselves how addicted we are to our phones and amongst other people how addiction is really taking a toll on our attention span during school as well as at home. So we thought it would be a good idea to investigate into find out more about it and seeing if we can link any of the, say, results to come back to the hypothesis. So Aoife, um, you've got some very interesting stats there about how attached people are to their, uh, to their phones. Just take us through them. Um, we found that we got screen times from 80 people and we found the average was 1.5 hours a day, which is a long time to be spending on your phone. Um, then um, the average notifications was 216 per day and the average pickups was 166. This shows like how much time we spend on our phones and people who had the highest screen times had the most pickups. Um, this showed in our test as they done worse and like 
our first test we had no um, technology involved and second test we did so people done 9% worse overall with the average and um, we just thought it was awful how much time to spend on our phone like we spend about a quarter of our day on our phone and like eight hours of that should be dedicated to sleep and school so we're kind of wasting our time. So have you decided to, uh, to change your ways on the back of your study? Um, yes, we have cut back a bit. We've noticed that we do spend too much time and we, if we'd done other things instead, like if you were doing your homework and didn't have your phone, you probably would get it done faster and you'd probably learn more, which would help you in your tests. And we found if you're on your phone, you won't remember everything and you'll do worse in your tests. So it's kind of helped us, I, I suppose, in a way. So I'm joined now by the team from St. Killian's Deutsche School in Dublin, uh, who had a subject that's very close to my heart as a, as a news reporter. So I'd like to get the lads to introduce themselves first. Hi, my name's Adi Sheshmoon, I'm 16. I'm Daniel Kaminsky, I'm 15. I'm Dunnick McGrath, I'm 15. So tell us a little bit about where the idea for the study came from, because we're all very aware of the likes of Fox News, uh, you know, The Guardian. News outlets very often have their own, uh, how do you say, agendas or styles of reporting. So what in particular um, inspired you to look at this study? Um, the inspiration for this project came from the coverage of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and we noticed that articles that had very strong sentiments tend to perform better in social media. So after pushing through sort of the, the news of the year, if you will, what kind of results did you find from it, Donica? Uh, we found there is indeed a correlation between sentiments and interactions. We found that articles between 0.2 and 0.6 in the both negative and positive perform the best. And... Uh, Neutral articles or very extreme articles in both negative and positive don't really perform that well. Ah, so people tend to gravitate towards the middle instead of enjoying the extremes. Yeah. Yes. Where did the idea kind of come from for the project? Um, well, me and my friend, uh, we saw that there was a lot of uh, unfair scoring in, in uh, boxing. And we saw recently there was a case where there... Um, like the, the the guy was getting hit, but the judge just never called it, and it became a health issue. So we developed this thing called Slugger, and essentially what it does is it reads the acceleration of the the boxer's helmet, and then displays that on a graph for medical professionals or judges to use to be able to score the bout and also to make sure that nobody gets terribly hurt. Yeah, so what I'm looking at here is sort of a, a, almost a circuit board, a small circuit board size thing, and you've got an Everlast helmet. And it, it seems to be, you know, it would very easily uh, be inserted into the helmet. So where exactly were you looking at having placing or placing it uh, I ideally, in the front or to the rear? Uh, on the back of the head, because that's where less punches will be hit. You're not really allowed to hit the back of the head in boxing, so it's much safer for the device. And what did you find out of your study so far? Did you find the device to be particularly sort of accurate uh, and maybe something that would find its way into, I don't know, maybe to start with the amateur boxing? Yeah, um, well, the device was developed for amateur boxing. Um, but right now, the device itself is not very powerful. It's, a, it's called a micro bit. Um, it's got some basic features like an accelerometer, a temperature, and stuff like that. It's currently split between two devices, uh, a receiver and a transmitter. Otherwise, it would just become overloaded and it would crash. 
and I imagine it's a, a great help for coaches as well to see the data being logged in real time, I suppose, to protect their, uh, their fighters. Yeah, um, we were thinking of having it displayed on a graph afterwards just as a scoring system, but then we realized that it could be used in real time for medicals, uh, medical professionals to be able to help. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. I'm taking a few minutes out now to talk with one of the special guests at this year's BT Young Scientist and Technology Exhibition. Uh, Dr. Patricia Scanlon is founder and executive chair of Soapbox Labs and Ireland's first AI ambassador. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. So uh, tell us a little bit about Soapbox Labs and where the idea came from. Yep, sure. So Soapbox is... uh we build children's speech recognition software. So it's proprietary software. Um, we've built it ourselves from the ground up and specifically for children's voices. Um, we license it to third parties to integrate into their products and services for children. So that can be across education in terms of uh, literacy or language learning and also across the gaming sector in terms of moderation, voice command and control. Um, and it's important to like, no, Soapbox is a deep tech company. Um, it was founded in 2013 and actually over my own experience with watching my daughter Leisha interact with um, tablets and apps and products that were designed for children, realising how poor the performance was in terms of children and then really taking a step back to realise how different children were in terms of their physical nature, their language, their behaviours and realising that products that have been modelled and built for adults will never work for children. And that was the genesis of Soapbox. So over the last few years, actually, in very recent times, actually, the government has sort of pricked up their ears and realised that AI has, um, I suppose, business implications and also intellectual implications as well that has led to the creation of the uh, country's first AI ambassador, which is a a role you've taken up. So um, for you, what does this role mean? Well, the government, the, the, the appointment of AI ambassador was part of the government's AI strategy that was launched uh, a number of years ago. Um, and the appointment of that was to help start a national conversation about AI. So it was conceived of and the strategy was released before the hype, I suppose, have reached kind of the mainstream, um, which was important because I think everybody saw that this was building up to a point. What we're seeing today, you can't look at the media over a week and not see countless numbers of uh, articles about AI now. And that's really only in the last couple of months, a year, that we're going to see it more mainstream. But it's been around for a couple of decades. We're just seeing that tipping point now where we're beginning to see it in real applications, in businesses, in government, um, across, you know, education systems, across healthcare systems, across, you know, farming, climate change, you know, um, so many different sectors are being impacted. As much as they will all be digitized, on the back of that, we'll start to see a lot more deployments of AI and having that conversation about what it is, what it's not, uh, avoiding the uh, hype, avoiding the stereotypes, avoiding the kind of sensationalist stories. What's the real issues around AI? Where are the opportunities? Where are the risks? And how do we mitigate them? How do we regulate them? And how can Ireland, Inc., benefit from AI and, and keep up with our competitors globally while keeping our citizens safe and secure and, and, and make sure there's an element of fairness um, in, in any deployment of AI? 
course, being here at the Young Scientist exhibition, uh, it means that that conversation extends to young people and their experience of AI. What do you think is, is actually happening on the show floor? Is this just a, a technology young people are kind of taking for granted now? Is something they're going to work with? Or do you find that a similar sort of ethical conversation going on that people are much more tuned into the implications of what they're doing, both on that intellectual level, but potentially on that commercial level as well. Yeah. I mean, all the above, right? So, you know, what is really interesting about AI and actually how we got started in Soapbox is that it is not just a purveyor of large companies. It used to be, but now with cloud deployments, accessibility of AI tools, anybody can use AI to deploy a solution to address a real problem in the world. And what we're seeing here on the floor is actually since last year, a doubling of the number of projects that have got AI in them. And that was something I was very keen to see what would happen. It has happened. And to me, that shows that these guys, the students here, the young people here are more plugged in. While, you know, older generations are still grappling with what AI is, ChatGPT is just all over the media. So everybody's suddenly waking up to the fact that, oh, I can actually see the benefits. What we're seeing is the young people already, already got tuned into this a while ago they will continue to do it. And what is really interesting, a big part of the AI ambassador role is to help engage young people. We did that in a number of different ways. We've done through the uh, youth assembly recently, um, you know, into schools, talking about it in, in universities as well. Because it's going to be such a big part in the coming decades, these guys know it. They're very conscious of the benefits and they're very, very conscious of the ethical implications, the fairness, the social implications of AI. And that's what you continue to hear. And, and it's lovely. I, it's something I, that really resonates with me that, you know, I have, I have hope for the future when I look at the innovations here, but also the, the focus on an ethical approach. So we're back on the show floor for one last time where I'm meeting Yuan Li from Sanford Park School in Dublin. And uh, he has done a very interesting project on the, I suppose, the, the perils of social media. And in particular, how, how social media can really make us feel bad and, you know, what we can do to perhaps overcome it. Have I got the idea sort of right there? Yeah, I think you've got it right. The inspiration for this project is that social media has gained so much popularity in the recent years. And then while people can express ideas freely on the Internet, they might also abuse this privilege by spreading detrimental comments that disturbs the experience of other users. So to combat this issue, uh, social media companies uh, recruit moderators to filter through all these comments. But you know, there are so many comments posted each day that it's just impossible to keep up with it. So what they also do is that they try to pick out keywords in comments. And then for those comments that have those keywords, they will just delete them, right? But I think it's not an accurate way. So my solution is that I want to study the performance of machine learning models on identifying those uh, negative comments. So the two uh, models I selected are Support Vector Machine, which is a more traditional model, and the Deep Neural Network, which is a more modern uh, architecture that uses a deep learning technology. And what did you find based on your experience there? Uh, I found out that, uh, so if I want to uh, identify negative comments, I should use the Support Vector Machine model. That is better for classifying all three categories, but I sh like specifically for the negative uh, section, I should use the Deep Neural Network. So that's what I found out. And ideally, where would you like to see your research folded out to? Would, would you like to see it being used by the larger social networks, or do you think it, it might have 
sort of a, a, a home with smaller companies looking to experiment with social? Yeah, it would definitely be ideal if this, uh, I call it a system, but it's really like a method of identifying a comment, a negative comments. I would really want to see it being implemented at big companies. And also the data that I use to train the models are actually from real world companies like Twitter and Instagram. So, you know, it would be really ideal if my uh, like, uh, models can be implemented there. Any Trekkie fans out there will remember the uh, the funeral of Tasha Yar, where she uh, had a nice little hologram telling everyone what she thought of them and how well they would be doing in life. And I guess we have a contemporary solution to that kind of thing through QR codes. So I'm here with the chaps from Boris O'Kane Community College in Tipperary. Uh, so tell me all about the project. So uh, your name first. I'm Barry Egan. And I'm Keen Hayes. So Barry, where did the idea for the uh, for the project come from? I gather you're not Star Trek fans. Uh, so basically, I was in a graveyard one day visiting my granny, and I was with my father, and he said basically it would be a great idea to have something on the gravestone to find information about the person. So we decided a QR code that could link to a website would be a good idea, and you could find information about the person or leave a message. So is this sort of a combination of a, a blog and, and sort of a, a guest book? Uh, yeah, it's it's a biography basically. You could, We have examples here that are kind of short of fictional people, but in realistically you can make very long stories. You could tell stories about their past and what they like to do, where they're from and all sorts. So a biography of the person is what we would describe it as. Sounds like a, a, a great potential for adding detail, perhaps for yeah. relatives looking to track down people that they'd lost yeah. touch with. Uh, or hadn't found. So what's the response been like so far? Well, I suppose we kind of made it so it could help people mourn the loss of a loved one. And people are really loving the idea that have come and seen it today. So yeah, that's, that's the main things people are thinking. So now I'm here with the team from School Wiragon Small in Cork. Um, I'm Ella. I'm Michelle. I'm Caitlin. And you looked at a problem that is, uh, I suppose, something that we're becoming increasingly hip to, which is the uh, area of panic attacks and how they affect us. So tell us a little bit about uh, the background of your project. We did loads of research and a recent study shows that 38.4% of students actually suffer from anxiety and it's more common than you think. One in three people have or will ha um, suffer from a panic attack sometime in their life. So with the problem becoming so common, what kind of solution did you come up with? Um, like with students in class, they they always need help. Like they need to, when they're having a panic attack, anxiety attack, they need to get out into space and be on their own. So our project, we made a heart monitor, see if when their heart rate spikes, and it would inform a teacher. So the teacher can like let them leave the classroom like subtly. So like they can say they need to go to the bathroom, they can leave the classroom, and they can get the help that they need. And what is the result of your of your project being so far? Are people really taken to the idea. Yeah, so we did like loads of investigations, so we did like we, someone doing like driving tests and then we saw how stressed they were and we let them have a 10 minute break and we saw how like quickly their heart rate dropped, so that like proved that like our thing would work like. And do you think projects like this will make people feel more comfortable talking about anxiety in future? Um, I think this is a good way because some people, um, as one of our surveys shows that um, students don't like talking about it with teachers. Majority of the students that we ask do not like sharing their information with teachers that because it makes them uncomfortable. Hey, hey, two, 
Okay, I'm here with the team from Mount St. Michael's in Mayo, and they're going to talk to me about their project, ADHD VRC. So, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. I'm Ronnie, and I'm Olivia Blitka. So, Ronnie, tell us a little bit about where the project came from, because, you know, virtual reality and ADHD, not something you might put together uh, off the bat, but so tell us a little bit about where the idea came from. So, me and Olivia have ADHD, and we want people to see what it's like to have ADHD. So, we made it into a VR type app, and we just want them to see what it's like. So, we're not lazy just sitting on a desk looking really tired, or overburnt out or any of that. We just want to show them that what our minds are really like after a tiring, stressful day. Because days where we could be, what's the word? Overloaded. Overloaded with information that's put into our brains. So when you're putting uh, sort of this virtual experience together, uh, what was the methodology that you used? Because, you know, virtual reality, a fairly intimidating technology for most people. Uh, so what did you guys do? Um, well, we began with MIT App Inventor to get the actual app running, and then we went to Box Blocksbog to get the layout and the construction we wanted for the app. And at the moment, we're using Blender to turn it into an actual game, so we don't have the game developed yet, but we're planning to in the future. So, tell us a little bit about the the, res the response uh, to the app. How how have people sort of looked at it and gone, oh right, okay, I've I've learned something now. I learn I know a little bit more about how you guys see the world. Um, so we've got a lot of people saying that's an interesting and a unique product pro project that we got, and how it's not really sympathize about people who don't have ADHD and how it's really easy and we have a video explaining what it's like to see in the eyes of a person with ADHD so then they see that and they understand that it's difficult for us to stay on focus and just not be able to be in the real world while we're not on medication. I'm here with Emily Duffy from Colm in Cork and she has been doing some work on the Manosphere, or rather that awful red pill part of the internet where people think that women are effectively out to get them. Am I being far too reductionist there, or is that actually accurate? Um, I'd say it's probably nearly accurate. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the study that you've done here. So um, for this study, I, was, I came up with the idea my sister was watching Love Island during the summer and she mentioned about how the men were making very derogatory comments towards women and how it was generating a lot of social media. So for my first study, I um, investigated the TY year group, so my own year group, they'd be about 15 to 16, just to gather observational data. So I asked them questions like, what age are you? Um, are you male, female, other? Um, and then at the end, I gave them a psychological test to gauge their misogynistic tendencies. So it's questions like, um, when it comes down to it, lots of women are diseaseful. So they rate that using the Likert scale, so strongly disagree neither agree nor disagree, um, somewhat disagree, somewhat agree, and strongly agree. And based on that, I gave them a score out of um, 20. 
So I added up their score and then they got a score relative to everyone else. So there's no actual scale saying, okay, you got a 20, you're misogynistic. But if you got a 20 and everyone else was around 14, 15, then you'd be more misogynistic. And then for the second study, I wanted to validate my findings experimentally. So I gave the fifth and sixth years in my school because I didn't want to use the TYs again because they catch on to the idea. So I gave them a very similar test, but they had to first watch a video. So they either got um, two, one Andrew Tate video, which was misogynistic, and then there was two of those types of videos and one benign video as a control group. And they answered the same assessments, the same psychological tests at the end of it. And the only difference was really that they got asked, did you like the video? And you had to say strongly, dislike, somewhat like. And the same, like, same similar to like art scale again on that. So for my first study, I found that males were significantly more misogynistic than females that those who spent four plus hours online were actually more misogynistic than those who spent one to two hours online. Um, the age didn't actually have an impact on misogynistic tendencies, but it could be too small of an age bracket. I'd probably have to expand that. And um, the males like the misogynistic clips much more than the females. And based on the fact that the males were so much more misogynistic, I decided to carry out a third study in the all-boys schools in Cork. So I did three all-boys schools and they watched the same videos as the boys in the mixed school. And I found actually that the boys in the mixed school were more misogynistic than the boys in the all-boys school, which I probably I found interesting. But it could come down to women are challenging men in the all-boys school or in the mixed schools, apologies, and that makes them more misogynistic. Or it could just be they're more misogynistic anyway, but further studies would have to be carried out to really show why. And that was Niall Kitson with some absolutely brilliant ideas from the floor of the BT Young Scientist Expo. I think my favourite is the QR code on the gravestone. So simple. Genius. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or of course you can listen to us online or Fridays with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next time, from myself Dusty Rhodes and of course Niall Kitson, thanks for listening. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.